Well, thank you, choir. Thank you, Dan. Dan, I appreciate you introducing yourself. Uh, always good to know who you are, so thank you for that. I'm Scott Weatherford. How are you guys this morning? Wyatt Warren, who uh, did not introduce himself this morning, but he's coming with the table. Look at you boys, spry and dexterous and all that other good stuff. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Wyatt, uh, well, let me just put it this way about Wyatt. Uh, since he didn't introduce himself, I'm going to introduce him. Would that be okay? So about 10 years ago, a warm West Texas wind blew over the Wimberley Valley. And there it deposited uh, a gift to us, and that was Pastor Wyatt Warren. So we're celebrating Wyatt's 10th anniversary today. Isn't that exciting to know that he's been here that long? Now, the one thing that makes Wyatt more tolerable is his precious wife, Pat. So, Pat, we appreciate you for taking care of Wyatt and thus taking care of us through Wyatt. Now, I met Wyatt approximately, uh, I guess it was, uh, first conversation was January 29th of this year. And Wyatt and I have become close friends, fast friends. It's fine. It's like I found a brother I'd been separated from birth, a much older brother, I might say. But uh, we just love him. And today, we're going to celebrate Wyatt's 10th anniversary. Now, there's no better way to celebrate anything than with a breakfast taco. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. So uh, after, after we dismiss today, we're going to invite you to join us in the back for a breakfast taco uh, in honoring of Wyatt. Now, Wyatt, I don't know why tacos and Wyatt kind of went together but it seemed like a, a natural fit. And so we're going to enjoy you. But I want to say this to you, brother. Thank God for you. Thank for your faithfulness. Your love and care for this family has been uh, just insurmountable. You've gone through two pastor changes, I believe, while you're here. And uh, you've served well, and we love you. So let's give God a big yay God for, for Wyatt, okay? That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Oh, a standing ovation. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, that's enough of that. Y'all can be seated. That's good. That's good. So, uh, so you will introduce yourself next week, right? Yes, okay, good, good deal. So there's nothing more difficult in our lives than the assignment we get as a parent, as a parent. Now, we're continuing our series on crazy love, and I hope you've enjoyed all the things we've added to that. If you haven't, you can check that out online. It's on our, on our, uh, on our webpage. Also, I need to say this. It's been kind of crazy what's happening here. Wyatt talked about people joining us online. Over 2,400 people viewed last week's message online. Can you imagine that? Uh, I guess there's that many people in the world who need to sleep. And so we provided a sleeping ministry for them. They can watch online and they can go to sleep. So that's a, a great blessing. It's our, it's our ministry to those suffering from insomnia so that we can add that to our list. So, but it's been amazing how God is just starting to move, starting to move in the valley, starting to move in our hearts, starting to move in our lives. And so I hope you're taking advantage of all the crazy love stuff. Now, but get this, y'all. We're already planning for the fall. And we're planning a great event. That get, we're asking God to move in a supernatural way coming in the fall. So I've spent this week writing for you, writing a preparation that we'll introduce in a near future. Uh, it's now in the proofreading uh, portion of the, of the writing process. That means I write it and Tara fixes it, and then it goes to somebody else and they fix it, and somebody else would fix it. And, and inevitably, when we release it, there's still mistakes. So if, when it's released, don't come to me and say, well, I found a mistake. I'm going to say congratulations, okay? 
because that's just the way proofing happens. But I'm excited about the fall. But this Crazy Love series is just really kind of, I think, sparks something in us, something that just resonates within us. Last week as we talked about prayer and and other weeks we talked about the differences between men and women and other things we've talked about. And this week I want to talk to you about something that you might roll your eyes about. But I want to say this to you because I think we need to hear it. 27% of families today are the biological parents with their biological children. 73% of families today are blended. Are blended. Did you guys understand that statistic? Now, they're either blended through remarriage or through adoption or through something, but they're, re, they're blended. Now, for some of you, you go, well, I don't need to hear this talk. I don't have a blended family or, or I don't even have children or I'm too old to have children. If we did have children, my wife would kill me in the night. That, uh, we're just not going to do that. But I want to say this to you. It's not about you. When you discover that life is not about you, then, man, the whole world opens up for you to minister to people and care for people. So even though you might roll your eyes and say, I don't hear this talk, maybe God wants you to hear this talk so you can minister to somebody else because the odds are overwhelming that somebody else in your life needs to hear some help and hope from this message on blended families. But in typical Pastor Scott fashion, I'm going to throw you a curveball at the end, okay? Y'all ready for that? We're going to, nobody's ready for that, okay? Well, get ready. It's here it comes. My brother was a a gifted high school baseball pitcher. He he never lost a baseball game. And when he was, after he graduated, he threw threw a fastball in the the mid-90s. That's about as fast as people drive on 32, is what I've noticed, the mid-90s. And he would tell me, I'm about to throw you a curveball, and inevitably it'd be a fastball that hit me in the ribs every time. And of course, I had the reactions of a dead animal, so I was pretty slow getting out of the way. But I'm going to throw you a curveball because I want you to see how all this wraps together. I want you to see literally the heart of God in this blending families. Now, I've said this to many couples that I've married. In fact, I'm doing a few weddings coming up this summer. I just got a call. Uh, One of our dear friends, he's finally getting married. He's in his late 30s, and he's getting married, and uh, he's getting married in Canada, in July, and he's asked me to do the wedding. So when you live in Texas in July, a trip to Canada is, you don't even have to pray about that, y'all. You just go. <laughs> just go. So we're going to go up there and, and marry him. They, they live in, get this, Musselman, Saskatchewan. Now, if you can find that on the map, I'll give you a quarter, okay? Musselman, Saskatchewan. All right? I can't even say Saskatchewan. That's just hard to say. But when, I've heard it said, and I've said, when you marry, you blend two cultures. You blend two cultures. Now, those of you who've lived in a cross-cultural experience know that when you enter into a new culture, your job is to adjust to that culture, adjust to that culture. Now, Wimberley has a distinct culture. There's a culture of Wimberley. And then when Tara and I came into Wimberley, we had to adjust to the Wimberley culture. Now, it wasn't that big of an adjustment compared to the Bravels, but it's a pretty big adjustment coming from Alabama or Canada. Actually, Texas culture is different from any other culture in the United States. Bless God for Texas, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's the only applause you've ever given me, given me about Texas. But nonetheless, that when you blend a family, you're possibly blending three and four cultures. And the difficulty of blending cultures 
is that you really don't know what to expect or even how to expect it. Now, when I talk about these things, you're going to just say, well, that's, that's really good, but really, how, how does that apply to us today? And does the Bible even talk about blended families? Well, I'll tell you, it does. It talks about it in several places. And so we're going we're gonna to dig into God's Word this morning, and we're going to harvest some ideas and some thoughts about blending families and blending cultures. And I believe every one of us in this room are going to get something out of this message because God wants to speak to us about, here's curveball, how we are a blended family. Hmm. Your brothers and sisters sitting around you, God has blended us into his family. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you want to say to us this morning, and I pray that you'll speak through me. They'll not be my words or thoughts, but, Father, your truth that leads us to understanding and to righteousness and to hope and to life and peace. And I thank you for how good and great you truly are. And I pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. I love the book of Genesis. At some point, I've taught through Genesis before. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's an arduous book. It's a little hard to understand, but it's a book filled with promises and hope. In Genesis 35, we encounter or see the life story of a guy named Jacob. Now, Jacob's nick- nickname was the Deceiver. And you read about Jacob, and you see that he had a myriad of problems. One of the problems he had was telling the truth. He had a real problem with truth-telling. He also had a problem with, um, well, with women. Jacob had too many wives. You know how many wives Jacob had? Anybody know how many wives he had? Four. He had 12 kids. Twelve's a lot, but four. That's close. Yeah, Solomon. Anybody know how many wives Solomon had? Too many. So you see Jacob with all this, but let me read this to you, and so you can see how it was blended, and we'll talk about this. Now, there's the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter, Diana. And the sons of Leah were Reuben. Now, the sons of Leah are Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Iskar, and Zebulun. He also had a daughter named Diana, or Dana. And the sons of Rachel, wife number two, were Joseph and Benjamin, Now, most of us have heard about Joseph and his uh, servitude with Pharaoh and becoming second to to the Pharaoh in Egypt. The sons of Bilhan. Now, who's this? This is Rachel's servant. So he had Leah and Rachel and then Rachel's servant. And the sons were Dan and Naphtil. The sons of Ziphah, which is Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. Now, when I read this, there's a tendency for us here in our modern world and and looking at things academically just to categorize this as, well, this is just what it was. We remove the humanity from the situation. We don't look at the Bible and see real people. We look at the Bible and we just see historical stuff. And we don't feel the humanity of it. We don't see the dynamic of it. We got one guy married to two sisters and two more handmaidens. What do you think it was like? It's a reality show, y'all. It's it's a survivor. It's the bachelor. It's it's just stupid in a big wad. I mean, what was this guy thinking? And 
And the answer is we know what he was thinking. He was thinking about himself. He was thinking about his perverted sexual appetite. He was making this mess on his own decisions. Most of our mistakes are made by our own bad decisions. How many of y'all are old enough to remember Flip Wilson, the, the comedian? Oh, a few of your hands, good. When I ask that in the second service, there'll be no hands lifted. And Flip, Flip Wilson's favorite saying was, the devil made me. Yeah, and so we want to blame the devil. Well, the devil usually said, I didn't have anything to do with that. You did that to your own stupid self. That you have, we've created most of our problems. Now, Jacob, he, uh, you look at the story of his life. He, he runs away from his family because his brother's going to kill him because he stole his brother's birthright. Now, that's just kind of a, a bad scenario right there. So he runs away, and he goes up to his extended family where he is, meets his intended wife, Rachel, and she is beautiful. The Bible talks about some beautiful women. and uh, It talks about beautiful women. It talks about uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife. It talks about Rachel as a beautiful woman. It talks about Esther as a beautiful woman. It talks about Abigail as a beautiful woman. Uh, it talks about these. So when the Bible says she's a pretty girl, what do you think? Yeah, she's probably a pretty good-looking gal. And so Jacob sees her, and he works for her father for seven years. That was the dowry demanded. You work for his father-in-law for seven years. And then they get married. And then on the wedding night, the daddy switches the girls. Instead of giving him Rachel for him to consummate their marriage, he gives them Leah. And so the Bible says that Jacob woke up the next morning and discovered that it was Leah. I don't think the Bible was actually... Well, Moses wrote these books of the Bible. And I think Jacob just got off the hook. Personally, I don't think... I think somewhere during the night, he realized that he had the wrong sister, but that did not stop him doing what he wanted to do. And through his own perverted appetite, he created a mess. He could have called a timeout. What is that day law? Wrong girl. But then he worked another seven years for Rachel. And can you imagine how belittled Leah felt? You imagine how entitled Rachel felt. Now, in the competition to have children, which is always a scary competition, by the way, these girls, Leah starts having babies, and Rachel doesn't have babies, so Rachel makes an agreement with Jacob, who there again, with no self-control, sleeps with her handmaiden. <clears throat> and then Leah gets where she's not having children, so she gives him her handmaiden, and it's just a... This is a train wreck. This is a dumpster fire, and this is real. And these are people living under one tent together in the Old Testament. And we read it from the sterile view of academia instead of re reading it from just the unrealistic view of humanity. This was a mess. How in the world could God bring a message out of this mess? But that's God. God is good at taking your mess and making it his message. And the sinful appetite of Jacob is leveraged by God to work for the glory of God. Now, that does give us an excuse to sin that grace may abound. Paul said, never let that be. 
There's a theological word for that. You worked this into a sentence this week. Antinomianism. Isn't that a great word? Antinomianism. That means I'm going to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, and God is going to cover me for it. All I have to do is pray for forgiveness, and I'm good. Wow. But I'll say this to you folks. A lot of us live that way. We go ahead and do what we want to do when we want to do it, and then we ask God to cover it up. Instead of stopping and saying, God, what do you want me to do? Now, but here's the great promise from God. Romans 8, 28 says, and God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and call according to his purposes. How many things are all? Is sin one of the all? God is God enough to leverage our sin to create something for our good. Now, that is a whole other sermon series right there. But here's the second part of that passage out of 29. See, you quote 28, but 29 says this, for God knew his people in advance and predestined them to become like his son. So Jesus, his goal is for you to be like him. And so even in our sin and our brokenness, he's working that to disciple us to disciple us. Now, I can have an antinomianistic view of life, or I can have a rescue view of life, or I can say, you know, Jesus, save me from me. Save me from me. The devil didn't make me do it. I did it on my own. I did it on my own. Save me from me. Now, is this making any sense to you guys? So, Jacob had too many wives, and he had too many children. But let me kind of unpack this a little bit more so you can really track the dysfunction. Don't you really want to track the dysfunction this morning? This is kind of like, you know, watching a Phil Donahue or a Jerry Springer episode. First thing Jacob did, he showed favoritism. Jacob favored one child over the other. How did he do that? He favored Joseph over the other children, the other boys in particular. Why? Because Joseph was the firstborn son of his preferred wife, Rachel. And so he gave him a coat of many colors. And you know that really sat well with all the other boys. In fact, they, they, they faked his death and sold him into slavery. Now, I grew up with two brothers and a sister. My two brothers weren't exactly all wonderfully good to me, but they never sold me to the Ishmaelites. <laughs> this is bad. And so there was dysfunction. And then there was just no confronting at all. Jacob never challenged their bad behavior. He never stepped it in, into the parenting for a way and said, what are you doing? What should you be doing? He never did this. For example, uh, Diana, Dana, the, the daughter, was sexually abused by a local uh, guy from, from a, a, the village there, not an Israelite, and the word got back to the two brothers that this had happened to their sister, so they concocted a plan. They said, all right, we'll let you marry our sister if all of you in the city are circumcised We'll let you marry our sister. If you don't know what that is, Dan will be glad to explain that to you. And, and so they all agreed. And the Bible says while they were recovering from their wounds, these two old boys went in and killed everybody. And this is what Jacob said. Boys, that's bad for business. What? Your two sons have just genocide a whole village 
And all you can think about is your bottom line of profit. He never confronted the boys about their bad behavior. This is a mess. He was more worried about being his business than being righteous. And then he was permissive. He allowed himself to be bought and sold, and he had trouble with the truth. And, and then he was, of course, generational sin was upon him. You know, wait a second, Scott. Jacob had a proclivity to this because his great-grandfather, Abraham, had a proclivity to this. Remember, Abraham had Sarah, his wife, but he also had Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. Now, all indications, understanding that Jacob was probably alive while Abraham was alive. He knew all the dysfunction. He knew what was acceptable and what not acceptable. And I imagine when the, the offer was made to Jacob, take my handmaiden, he thought about grandpappy. He said, well, I'm just keeping up a family tradition. To quote Bocephus. You guys know who Bocephus is? All right. And so there was this generational sin. Now, I want, I want you to pull the thread of that. Pull the thread of that generational sin. Where did that lead? It led to the kings of Israel doing what they did. And David having eight wives and 27 concubines. And Solomon having thousands of women. And then on and on and on. And it led to the downfall of the whole nation because a generational sin was not confronted and dealt with. And that's why a couple of weeks ago when I talked about generational sin, I said, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And you could break the power of generational sin in your life by you choosing to live off for Jesus. You can go back and listen to that talk if you need a refresher. Now, somehow God used this mess and what I want to say to you, that in all the light of this, there was hope, hope fully infused in this blended family. It's hope. Because out of this family came Judah, and out of the Judah came Jesus. Wow. If you pull on the genealogy of Jesus and you start looking back, you'll find that Jesus, Jesus is one of his ancestors with a guy named Perez. And Perez was a twin born to a woman named Tamar, and Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. You can't make this stuff up, y'all. And it's all in God's Word. And we read it from academia, and we kind of sterilize it, but you read it with humanity infused into it, and you go, what? Mm. So how do we then blend our families without carrying on all this brokenness? How, how do we merge this together? I want to repeat this phrase to you because I want it to really become something in your heart. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Can you say that with me? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Now, how many of us have had a bad start? Okay, the rest of you will talk about lying next week. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that, it's that struggle of the tension of the in-between. 
how do, how do we figure this out? How can we look at our lives and our families and you say, well, okay, I, Tara and I are not a blended family. We've been married for 35 years, be 36 years in July. I think we're going to make it. I think we're going to make it. Uh, July 11th will be our 36th wedding anniversary. We're not a blended family, but we get this. So I can't look at this as a position of, well, I'm better than y'all, so I'm going to preach downhill to you. No, 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 no. have to look at this. We're in this thing together. So how do we bend and not break? And I want to just jump over to Apostle Paul. I don't mean to say I've already achieved these things or I have already reached perfection, Paul said. I love that. I love that. Man, Paul just became human to me. There's so many times I... I hear preaching that's from a position of perfection when I know it's not true. I know it's not true with me. And Paul says this in the transparency of who he is, I, I've not already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ possessed me. Jesus wants you to be like him. Now, we'll talk more about that in another message. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Now, an editor would have changed that. An editor would have said that God is calling me. But Paul says, no, 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 this is for us. And when you read us in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, it's inclusive of those who were in that present time and those who are in this present time. It moves beyond time and space, and it settles in us that God is calling us to live for him. So Here's some tips about how to blend your family, how to blend your life, or really how to work in this tension of a, of a mess becoming a message. Now, I used to say this, and Tara won't let me say it anymore, so I'm just going to repeat it. Uh, God takes a hot mess and makes a holy message. She doesn't like that. And so I won't use that again. Let me say it one more time so you get it, <laughs> that God uses a hot mess to become a holy message, okay? Now, I won't say that again until the next time. So here's the first thing that I have to do, that we have to do, is that I take a real look at myself. I have to really look at my own heart and my own life. You see, I live in a tension. There's a tension. There's a pulling. The pulling for what I want to be, what I am, what I once was, and there's this, this pulling in my life. And the good that I want to do, I don't do but the very thing I hate, I do. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? You know who said that? Paul in Romans 7. And we all live with that tension. Don't you live with that tension? Ain't nobody moving right now. What I am and what I want to be, and I feel that tension. And Paul, you said, who will free me from this body of death? And I don't know if I've told you this, but I'm going to tell you again anyway. If I have, just forgive me. That Paul was using a word picture there for a Phoenician form of capital punishment when someone was convicted of murder 
they would tie a corpse to the guilty person for that corpse to rot and decay and kill the murderer slowly. That's disgusting. Who will free me from this body of death? Paul flips the script in Romans 8, and he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus literally cuts off the corpse of who I once was and lets me live in the glorious presence of being the redeemed and the forgiven. Wow. And then when God looks at me, he doesn't look at me and go, oh, my soul and body. He looks at me and says, my beloved, I see Jesus. And I see him in the tension. But one day, you're going to be out of tension, you're going to live with me. And until that time, I'm going to work on you so that you can become like me. And folks, there's a theological word for that called sanctification. And that we live in that tension. Was Jacob living in the tension? Even with this blended mess? Yes. And so I need to say this to you. I want you to write this down. An unexamined life is a dangerous life. An unexamined life is a dangerous life. Aristotle said it this way. An unexamined life is not worth living. I think an unexamined life is dangerous. You see, because in this blending, this, this merging, as God's working in me and God's working with us, you could somehow think that I've got a blended family, therefore I have no hope. And I want to tell you something, that's a lie right out of hell. It's a lie. Or I've had a bad start or I've made a mistake or I've got a hurt, a habit, a hang-up that I cannot overcome. That's right. You cannot overcome it. But Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So we fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. We fix our hope on this one who has died for us and rose again to prove his power. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who takes our mess and makes it his message. Woo, if you were shouting Baptist, it'd time shout. Because Jesus has set us free. Now, I'll say this to you. This is a call to us to have intentional discipleship. We have to want it. We have to want it. It's Christ-centered living. That means our values are going to be like Christ that our values in our family are going to line up with biblical values. And then as we parent in a blended family, I will say this, this is something really dangerous, that sometimes blended families come and the parent of the blend tries to parent or discipline the children from the other, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work because you have to earn the right to discipline. Isn't that right? I have a statement that I, I use with church leaders that when I'm leading a church, I said, you know what? If you love me, you can tell me anything you want to. If you don't love me, keep your pie hole shut. I don't want to hear it. And the same thing is with parody. When my children know that I love them and I care about them, I'm not looking for a pound of flesh. I'm looking to correct and love and hold them and protect them and provide for them. Then they're willing to be parented by me. Love covers a multitude of what? Sins. 
And so I have to say, my values have to line up. Our parenting has to line up with Jesus. And our family culture should line up with Jesus. And I've got to want it. I've got to want it. I've got to want it. I have to be intentional. I want to say this to you, y'all. I spend time in God's Word and journaling most every day. But do you know why I do that? Not so Jesus will bless me. It says, so I will be a blessing to you. And my personal devotion ought to show up in my relational love, not in my massive knowledge, but in my behavioral love. When I read my Bible and pray, I'm doing this so I can love Tara better. I can love our children better. I can love you better. This week, I've been working on something for you in the fall. I've been writing, and I've written this with just uh, just so much love for you because I wanted to to give you something that's going to encourage you. And it's for King Jesus, but it's for you. Pastor John said, how can you say you love God who you haven't seen and, and don't love your neighbor who you have seen? He's not telling the truth. And just starts figuring it out that this blended family stuff really is about me being right with God than about us being right with God. And then we become a contagious family, a missional family, a family that's loving each other deep, deeply and a safe place for children to grow up whole. Now, I have a philosophy that um, this may get me in trouble but kids matter more than adults. Kids matter more than adults. We got to take care of kids because they can't take care of themselves. Wouldn't you agree? And so when we're parenting, we have to take care of our kids. That doesn't mean being indulgent and spoiling. <laughs> we had grandchildren. When Ivy came along, I told Tara, I said, I can't wait. I'm going to be indulgent, and I'm going to spoil this kid. And she says, what's different? You did the same thing with our kids, Right? But uh, Papa Scott wants to, be, wants to love that little girl. Now, mom and daddy can discipline her. I'm not. I'm just going to love her. Now, I may suggest some things to mom and daddy only if I'm invited to share. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so when you think about blended families, you think about what God wants to do, get this. This is where the whole talk boils down to. It's not about the blended family. It's about you and your intentionality to pursue King Jesus. Mm. And I hope, you will, I hope you're with me. And that living for Jesus, Paul says, I press toward the upward call, and that implies a movement. A movement. I'm going to be engaged intentionally to move and not be static and not be still, but to move. I've got to want it. Friday night, we get a call from our friend in, in Canada. Um, I won't tell you his name. I'll give you his initials, Travis Hyde. <laughs> Travis is a young man who came into our life, and he actually lived with Tara and I for a year. He needed a place to live, and we offered that place, and he lived with us for a year. 
and we loved him. He's like, he's like a son to us. And the history of us, it's not unusual. We've, we've taken in vagabonds and strays a lot, right, Tara? She's looking at me like, you're the first one I took on. Yeah, okay. But, <laughs> but we've, we've done that. And uh, Travis came to live with us, and uh, he, was, he was really in a, in a hard time in his life. And we loved him, and we mentored him, and we discipled him, and whatever other kind of spiritual word you want to use. Basically, I was his friend. And then when he called me, he said, Scott, I can't imagine anyone else doing my wedding but you. I was honored by that. It just so happened our, our schedule was, was clean, and, and um, it's okay, we, we can do this. And then Tara says to me, this is awesome, this is a perfect time for you to lose some weight so you'll look good when you go back to Canada. But you know what my precious wife did? She motivated me to become what I am currently not. Spurring one another on to love and good deeds. You see, my life verse has been, I buffet my body until I realize it's buff, buffet, not buffet. <laughs> kind of funny, I thought, yeah. So I'm on the John the Baptist diet right now. I'm not eating locusts and wild honey, but I must decrease and Jesus must increase, okay? So, but the truth is, I've got to want it. I've got to want it. And you have to want it. So maybe you're Jacob or Rachel or Leah or, or Bilhanna or, or Zephel. Maybe, maybe that's who you are. God says, that's not who I say you are. I say you could take this, and I could use this. But here's the thing I want you to really think about. This church is a blended family. We're a blended family. Now, the cool thing about this is that we get to choose to be a part of this. You know, Jesus chooses you, and he calls you, and you come to, you come to saving faith with him, and he puts you in a family. Listen to this. In fact, write this down. A Christian without a church family is a spiritual orphan. You need a family. You need a family because we grow together better. We serve together better. We encourage together better. We, we change the world together better. Church is not something you show up to. It's something you're a part of. It's a family you belong to. In fact, it's not what you show up to that matters. It's what shows up in you that matters. We're family. This building, this building is a church building. It's not the church. It's just the church building. It's where we gather. When this building sits empty, it doesn't have any sanctimonious power. It's just an empty building. But when this building is filled with the church, then it takes on the sanctimonious power of the Lord Jesus Christ because he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. It's the power of the gathering. The gathering. So this church is a blended family. Now, let me read this for you. It's what Paul wrote in Romans 8. So you not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave. Instead, you have received God's spirit where he's adopted you as his own children. Now, we call him Abba, Daddy, Father. We, uh, we were in, in Israel a few years ago, and we, we heard children saying, Abba, Abba. We said, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy God. Daddy God, for his spirit joins with our spirits 
to affirm that we are God's children. I love that. Have you ever doubted that you belong to Jesus? Of course you have. Because Satan loves to mess with you. And the two things he loves to do is make you doubt you're really saved and discourage you because you're not really that great of a person. Am I telling the truth now? You know what? He's a liar. He's a liar. And God's spirit bears witness to our spirit. You belong to me, Jesus says. I want you to go back right now and remember the time that you prayed and asked Jesus in your heart. And some say, well, I can't remember exactly because I was a little kid. Do the best you can. And I want you to hold on to that. Because the next time Satan comes, which will probably be in the next 10 or 15 seconds, and says you really don't belong to Jesus, you tell him to shut up. Because I know whom I have believed in and persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Why does Satan want to discourage you that you really belong to Jesus? Because if you doubt whether or not you're saved, then you're going to be discouraged to live all for Jesus and you're not going to tell anyone about the saving love of God because you are doubting your own. Stop it! And settle it. I remember the day that I settled the debate. I was in seminary, and my friend Preston Odom was being ordained, and I'd sung, and I was sitting on the front row by Tara, and I was struggling. Am I really saved? Am I really saved? Am I really saved? Did what happened at seven was risk? Because I was learning all this theology and all this stuff. My head, and the Lord took me back to when I was seven years old, sitting on my father's lap. He smelled like cigarette smoke and Old Spice. And I prayed and asked Jesus in my heart, and it settled it, and I've never doubted it since then. And when it creeps in, I go back to that time. I know who I have believed in. Settle it. And when this church, when you settle it, you'll start living it. Are you with me? Now, some of you have experienced churchianity and not Christianity. You say, well, I've gone to church all my life. Well, congratulations. I've gone to a barn, and I've never become a horse. You have to be, be born a horse to be a horse, right? Some of you have to be born again. Please don't miss Jesus by going to church. Please. In a moment, I'm going to help, help you nail it down. If you haven't nailed it down already, you're going to nail it down. This church is a blended family of God. With our hurts, our habits, and our hang-ups, God has brought us together into this family. We're birthed out of slavery to fear to life and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We've been delivered from the dominion of darkness where you were once a child of the devil, you're now a child of the God. You have been adopted into God's family. Adopted in God's family. In the churches we've served in the past, Tara has helped start adoption ministries where we got our church motivated to adopt little children because little children need a home. And uh, it was awesome to see 
people adopting children. Now, Tara and I never did adopt any children because we just didn't feel God wanted us to do that. But what he wanted us to do was lead a spirit of adoption. Why? Because God is an adoptive dad. And he's adopted every one of you who've claimed the name of Jesus. He's brought you into his family. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He's adopted you. You see, we're a fellowship of the broken, but we don't remain broken because we're healed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ, but we lose our judgment because we once were broken. We once were broken. And we don't judge other people for their brokenness. We pity them and we love them and we invite them to come to the one who will heal them. We come to the one who will be their father, who will be their father. I have a lot of titles in my life. I'm not going to tell you what they are. It really don't matter. But the title I love best is Daddy. Is Daddy. Actually, the title of it is best now is Papa Scott. Because I'm Papa Scott to my little Ivy. And my daughter now calls me Papa and my son calls me Papa and Tara calls me Papa <laughs> at times. But I love that because I think that reflects the heart of God. And I want to be a daddy like God's a daddy. And I want to be a man like Jesus wants me to be because I want to live all for Jesus. And I want to love like Jesus. I want to see like Jesus. I want to speak like Jesus. I want to hear like Jesus. I want to have the mind of Christ. And I can't do that on my own. I need Jesus. What about you? You got to want it. What if this church, First Baptist Wimberley, decided that we were not going to be infused with the DNA of a denomination, but we're going to be infused with the DNA of Jesus, and we're all going to want it. We're all going to want it. I'll tell you what will happen. The buildings will not contain it. not contain it because King Jesus loves people and he's not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. So you might be in the 27% today of families that are biological with your biological children or you might be in the 73% that are blended but I want to say this to you, the best place for you is in the family of God where Jesus is our daddy He's our king. He's the one who saves us and sanctifies us. He's the one who heals us. He's the one who loves us with a love that will not let us go. So, welcome to the blender. <laughs> welcome to life all for Jesus. I hope this helps. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the way you're